Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we're excited to bring you the news. Uh, Derek, let's start with Iran. And for uh, listeners, we did a special on Iran. Uh, it is free. Go to our website to check that out. But Derek, let us know what's been going on there. Uh, so the U.S. finally undertook on Friday the um, long-awaited, I guess, retaliation for that. A drone strike last month in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers, which they've uh, uh, was carried out by an Iraqi militia or multiple Iraqi militias. The Umbrella Group took credit for it. As was expected, uh, the response didn't involve any direct strikes on Iran, uh, which uh, could have been uh, really provocative. Instead, it targeted uh, militia sites and uh, sites affiliated with the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, across Syria and Iraq, 85 sites in total. There has been some casualty data uh, released. At least 45 people were killed. Uh, what's unclear is uh, whether any of them were civilians. Uh, there were at least 29 killed in Syria, according uh, to uh, at least the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which, you know, say what you will, it's at least a source. Uh, all of whom seem to have been guarding the sites, according to the observatory. So uh, presumably not civilians uh, or anything you would you would call civilians. The Iraqi Popular Mobilization Force, which is, uh, again, one of the uh, the official umbrella arm of or umbrella group covering the militias, said that 16 of its members were killed. So that takes you to 45 people. The Iraqi government has been saying that there were civilians killed. First, they said there were civilians among that 16 which uh, apparently turns out not to be correct. But they have said that at least two civilians were killed, possibly in addition to the 16 militia fighters. So that would take total death toll up uh, a bit higher. President Biden said last night that the United States does not seek conflict in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. But let all those who might seek to do us harm know this. If you harm an American, we will respond. There was uh, there's been some backlash to these strikes which uh are probably only the first wave uh, well actually we know now i should get into that that we're uh, only the first wave uh, of what the biden administration has promised will be an extensive uh response to the jordanian strike i would imagine that any further attacks will take uh, a similar form to this one they'll target militia sites uh in syria and iraq and steer clear of iran itself there's been backlash already from the uh, two countries on whose soil the strikes took place, I think lost in the U.S.-Iran kind of back and forth is the fact that Syria and Iraq are their own countries. And the United States, despite being the protagonist of the world, is not uh, really allowed to just bomb uh, places in both of those countries without permission from their governments. And it has no uh, so it has no authority to do that. But it does it anyway. The Syrian government, of course, doesn't want the U.S there at all. The U.S. is squatting on Syrian territory uh, and, you know, demanded after these strikes, demanded the U.S. leave, which it does repeatedly, and the U.S. just ignores them. Uh, But Iraq, the Iraqi government is supposed to be a partner uh, to the United States. 
uh, as I say, they, they're saying that at least a couple of civilians were killed. They're not pleased about this. Uh, the, there was a, a dust up, uh, on Friday, John Kirby, our friend, the national security spokesperson for the white house claimed that the U S had given Iraqi authorities advance notice of the strikes. This turns out to have been not true. Uh, the Iraqi government was quite angry that Kirby said that he had to apologize on Tuesday for having, uh, according to him, been misinformed himself. He wasn't trying to mislead anybody, of course. Uh, you know, how could you think that? Uh, so the Iraqi government not not pleased with this. Well, uh, then the U.S. conducted a follow up strike Wednesday evening in Baghdad uh, that killed uh, a senior figure in the Kata'ib Hezbollah militia, one of the uh, larger the Iraqi militias, perhaps the largest uh, the strike is the he's believed to have been uh, the the person killed was Sam Mohammed Assadi is believed to have been uh, Kataab Hezbollah's Syrian commander. Uh, but again, this is another strike taking place in Iraq in the capital, a crowded city of Baghdad, uh, with the United States just sort of running roughshod and doing whatever it wants. Uh, so the Iraqi government has again. Uh, protested this, um, and you know we've we've talked about this. The the Iraqis uh, may be trying to get the U.S. military uh, to an exit point here. The U.S. is still uh, in Iraq, ostensibly for counter Islamic State operations, but of course that's long past being a serious concern. The U.S. is there basically to uh, antagonize Iran and and do its uh, you know counter Iran stuff, which it's not mandated. Uh, that's not mandated by the Iraqi government. Uh, they So there is uh, increasingly a call for, uh, even among Iraqi politicians who have heretofore been more or less okay with the U.S. having a presence there, uh, There's there are growing calls for the U.S. To, to leave because of this kind of stuff. Derek, how dare you? The U.S. is there to defend democracy. Uh, let's move on to Gaza. And, and what, a, what a shock. Uh, Netanyahu has rejected Hamas's plans for a ceasefire. I just Who thought he really wanted to end it, Derek. Yeah, I, I, it's, you couldn't, couldn't have predicted this. So uh, this saga has been going on for a while now. There was a, a proposal for a ceasefire, for a 45-day ceasefire, uh, that could be renewed uh, at least a couple of times, theoretically, according to the the roadmap uh, that was presented to Hamas. I would say a little bit over a week ago, uh, maybe maybe a week and a half at this point. Hamas spent a long time deliberating this internally, and there are several. There's a lot of speculation about uh, whether Hamas leaders. Uh, cohered around a position or were sort of uh, scrambling to try and come to some uh, some consensus. The, 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 the divergences between, uh, let's say, Hamas's military and political wings or between the leaders who are in Gaza uh, seeing their family members get killed and, and under threat themselves versus the leaders who are uh, living in Doha and don't have to deal with that on a day-to-day basis. There's some speculation that, that they have, uh, they're not quite on the same page with respect to the, the necessity of a ceasefire. So Hamas finally, after several days, as I said, where things started to you know, really look uh, discouraging, presented its own uh, response, its own version of this ceasefire, which was uh, a little bit different in the, the big picture. It called for a f- 100 35-day ceasefire, which uh, sounds like a, a big escalation, but what what they were really doing is making these three 45-day phases 
explicit in the text of the agreement. So there would be uh, it would be a, a, a the, the, all those renewals that would have had to be negotiated under the the offer that was presented to Hamas in each step uh, would instead just be laid out uh, from the beginning. Uh, they laid out the the captive exchange. There would be uh, you know one group of hostages in the first phase with uh, some number of Palestinians who are being held by uh, the Israeli government. Uh, and that would go through all three phases. What was different about Hamas's offer uh, was it required uh, in the first phase for the Israeli military to withdraw from uh, the uh, main population centers of Gaza. So Gaza City, Khan Yunus, et cetera, and start rebuilding hospitals, uh, building uh, real facilities to uh, to hold house displaced people etc uh, and in the second phase it, it called for the israeli military to withdraw from gaza altogether uh, these are non-starters for netanyahu who does not want a permanent ceasefire at this point he does not want this war to end uh, because for one thing he might have to deal with a domestic political reckoning uh, so he he is uh, continuing or he is intending to continue the war, uh, and this deal kind of laid it out in the way that it was described. It lays it out that so that uh, you'd go through this 135 day ceasefire, and then at the end, that's it. That would be the end of the war. It would be some negotiations along the way, obviously, uh, but that's no no good for Netanyahu. And uh, the final thing essentially is it, it leaves Hamas in charge uh, in Gaza, presumably, which again Netanyahu is is insisting on absolute victory, whatever that means. Uh, I guess it means uh, Hamas being scattered to the winds, despite the fact that they don't seem to be uh, doing a very good job of of affecting that at this point. Derek, could you maybe tell us about Netanyahu ordering the IDF into Rafa? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, we've talked about this. The, it's the, next, the only place left for the Israeli military to go in uh, the Gaza Strip is Rafa, which... Um, is now home to, uh, I would say, the vast majority of, of the territory's population, hundreds of thousands of people who have been displaced by the Israeli fighting in uh, Gaza City and Khan Yunus, every, everywhere, you know, north of, of Rafah. Fr- on Friday, Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, uh, or actually it was late Thursday, so, uh, you know, it was reported on Friday, announced that uh, the Israeli military is, in fact, turning uh, to Rafah as its next target. Uh, this was just making clear what uh, you know had been heavily speculated. And Netanyahu has now ordered, in the wake of rejecting this uh, Hamas ceasefire proposal, uh, has ordered uh, the IDF to prepare for a ground invasion of Rafah. Uh, I had seen some speculation that the Israelis might take their time here before ordering a ground invasion to give people in Rafah a chance to maybe get out through the line and go back north. I don't know what they would be going back to because everything to the north has been destroyed. Uh, but it doesn't sound like, I mean, if this Netanyahu order is uh, is correct, it does not sound like uh, they're giving them time to do that. So, uh, you know, as bad as this conflict has, has been for civilians in Gaza, as uh, horrific as, as the humanitarian situation is, if the IDF goes in heavy to Rafa the way it's done elsewhere, just because of the by virtue of how many people are now packed into this place, it's going to be uh, a bloodbath in all likelihood. 
Very grim. But Derek, let's move on to something, I guess, that's a bit lighter in its farcical nature. Uh, and that's the Philippines and the Duterte-Marcos feud. Uh, it yeah, is blown thought, up. What is that? Maybe we could we could lighten things up a little bit. So Rodrigo Duterte, the former president of the Philippines, and Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the current president of the Philippines, had an ad hoc political alliance. Uh, Marcos ran with uh, Sarah Duterte as his quote unquote, running mate tickets in the, in the Philippines are uh, informal voting for president and vice president is done separately. But uh, they sort of ran together and there was this sense of uh, the two big families, the Marcos family and the Duterte family uh, merging and you know joining forces that has completely broken down to the point where Duterte apparently is now threatening to take over the island of Mindanao in, in southern Philippines and secede from the rest of the country. Uh, this is, uh, it's, it's gotten to that level of absurdity. They're, they're angry at each other uh, for a number of reasons. I think uh, it began with uh, Marcos shifting the Philippines' foreign policy away from uh, where Duterte had it, which was uh, much more solicitous toward China, friendlier toward China. Uh, Marcos, mostly over continued tensions in the South China Sea and the overlapping Philippine and Chinese claims has gone uh, hard back toward the U.S. Uh, he is he's really shifted uh, back in Washington's direction. Uh, they have since it's continued. They've continued falling out. Marcos has talked about maybe rejoining the International Criminal Court. Duterte, of course, left uh, the ICC because they were investigating his uh, war on drugs or really war on drug users uh, for all of the violence and murder and uh, extrajudicial uh, execution that was involved in that project. Uh, and so he quit. Marcos may come back into it, which would potentially could potentially put Duterte uh, under the ICC's uh, jurisdiction again. Uh Lately, they've been uh, feuding over Marcos's this talk of potentially uh, amending the Philippine Constitution. And Duterte accuses him of trying to get rid of term limits and make himself essentially president for life. Uh, it got to the point uh, over the, the past week or two uh, that they started accusing each other of being on drugs. Duterte accused Marcos, I think, of being on co cocaine. Marcos uh, accused Duterte of being on, uh, I don't know, some mood stabilizer or something. I can't remember the details. But uh, so they're basically calling each other drug addicts now. Uh, and uh, Duterte is threatening to secede. So that's that's where things stand. Uh, the Philippine government has taken this seriously enough that the defense minister, the national security advisor have all come out and said, uh, we will use force to prevent any attempted secession. Uh, so apparently they're not completely dismissing what Duterte is saying as the ravings of a a funny, strange little guy. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, that's where things stand. It's it's all very classy and above board and, and going well. We'll keep a very, very close eye on the feud of the century. Uh, let's move on to Sudan. <laughs> Back to sad news. Uh, yeah. Derek, can you give us a humanitarian update? Yes. Uh, the UN World Food Program last week, last Friday, said that it now estimates that 18 million people in Sudan are facing acute hunger its Sudan director uh, said that they've already begun receiving reports of people dying of starvation. This is this is what's happened in the wake of the Rapid Support Forces uh, group's conquest of uh, Wad Madani, which was, a, was is a major city south of Khartoum, had been in government hands and was being used as a humanitarian hub 
uh, by the UN and other relief agencies for people, especially people who had been displaced and had to flee the fighting in Khartoum. Uh, with the RSF now controlling that city, the the humanitarian groups are scrambling to figure out uh, how to reach those people now. Uh, and uh, clearly it's not going very well. The reality is that because of the ongoing conflict, because of the insecurity, and because we don't have the access to the populations where they are, we're not meeting all of the needs. We need funding to allow us to do that. But beyond that, we need desperately for a ceasefire. There are uh, reports of uh, that displacement has risen uh, to something on the order of 11 million people. 10.7, I believe, was the uh, the figure the UN used, which is uh, significantly larger than the last uh, estimate I saw from them. So things are are, are incredibly grim. Uh, the UN's official death toll, I guess, quote unquote, official still remains at 12,000. Uh, which even the UN says is is uh, nowhere near accurate. They just can't get information from uh, places like Darfur and other kind of remote areas that are, especially now, the ones that are now uh, under RSF control. And what about the telecom services? Yeah, this is a new wrinkle. Um, all three, as of yesterday, all three of Sudan's largest internet providers were uh, offline. And the reason uh, reasons are unclear. Uh, two of them, started to go offline over the weekend uh friday that was uh, they really kind of crashed on monday uh sudanese state media and uh some other kind of uh, sources within the telecom uh industry were blaming the rsf for bringing them offline the rsf hadn't said anything and i don't think there's been any confirmation of that and i i don't know uh, now why this third provider has come down but it's you know it's cut communications for uh, across most of the country uh, so just adding to a to a dire situation. Let's move on to Senegal. And uh, the election there has been postponed. So what's been going on? Yes. Um, Macky Sall, the president uh, of Senegal, announced uh, over the weekend that uh, he was postponing uh, the presidential election that was to take place on February 25th. Uh, Senegal's parliament has since uh, voted to uh, reschedule that election for December 15th. Uh, and to extend Saul's term uh, until then, I mean, basically means he'll be in office through the end of the year, at least, because who knows what will happen in December if we'll decide we have to postpone it again. There's a lot of concern here that Saul is attempting uh, a self-coup. If, you know, anybody who, who pays attention to Senegalese politics will know uh, there were major protests last year uh, over uh, speculation that Saul was going to seek a, an unconstitutional third term uh, in office, that he was going to run again. Uh, he eventually, and I think probably grudgingly, uh, announced that he would not do that. Uh, he then declared through his support behind a man named Amadou Ba, who he appointed prime minister, is clearly sort of heir apparent. There's good reason to think that he's either changed his mind and, and would like to at least give himself a de facto third term by just postponing the election over and over again, or at least that he's decided that Bob was uh, on track to lose the election and was not happy about that uh, and has decided to suspend uh, the vote because of that. Uh, this is the culmination of a lot of things that have been going on around this election. In addition to Saul, the speculation about Saul seeking a third term, uh, the Senegalese Constitutional Council disqualified uh, m arguably the two most prominent opposition candidates last month over, you know, dubious, uh, dubious charges. 
Uh, Saul's explanation for postponing the election was that the council uh, did not properly vet the candidates. Uh, for example, he, he's claiming that several of the uh, approved candidates, there were 20 people who had been permitted to, to stand on the ballot. He's saying that several of them uh, actually have dual citizenship, which by law would make them ineligible to run. There's no proof of this. Uh, sort of taking Saul's word for it, I guess. Uh, he's opened also opened an investigation into a couple of the the judges on the Constitutional Council, uh, which you know kind of just adds to this sense of uh, something funny is going on here. The decision sparked uh, major protests uh, in Dakar and other parts of uh, Senegal over the weekend into you know Monday, Tuesday. Things, as far as I know, seem to have calmed down a bit. Uh, but there were some, there were some, you know, burning tires, uh, police using tear gas, uh, violence, that sort of thing. Um, I think, you know, I think it's it's calmed down a bit. But now there's there's an international outcry. The economic community of West African states has asked Saul and Senegalese government to rethink the decision to postpone the election. The U.S. Is, and, and France have expressed concern. This is, uh, it's interesting. This is a, a you know, Senegal's been been treated as a success story in West Africa, which, as you know, Danny has had its problems with uh, anti-democratic events lately. Uh, it's been treated as a as a real shining beacon in that region, uh, a democratic success story. And uh, this undermines that quite a bit. The question is, since it's not a change in regime, it's not a military coup overthrowing the president, it is the president attempting to secure himself in office uh, maybe indefinitely, uh, whether ECOWAS is really equipped uh, or these other or the African Union or, you know, uh, the European Union, the U.S., France, pick your uh, pick your outside actor, whether they're equipped to deal with something like this. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to the nation. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. Uh, let's talk about Ukraine, where the Zelensky Zaluzhny drama continues unabated. Yeah, so uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is, uh, as we talked about last week, is firing his top military commander, Valery Zaluzhny. Uh, the, he still hasn't actually done it, but it's clear to everybody and been reported multiple places now that he is doing it. Uh, reportedly, he's now informed the U.S. government uh, of his intention to fire Zaluzhny. Uh, he even went on Italian TV over the weekend uh, and sort of confirmed that he's getting rid of Zelensky, but he couched it uh, in this kind of bigger picture overhaul of Ukrainian military and political leadership. So I don't know if that's a real thing that he wants to do or if he got you know uh, frightened by the backlash over Zelensky and wants to make it look like he's not singling this particular person out for firing he's doing a you know just a spring cleaning uh type of thing uh in the the upper echelons of the ukrainian establishment 
but uh, there are, I mean, there has been some some rumbling already that that Ukrainian kind of rank and file soldiers are not happy about this. Solution is popular publicly and popular you know, apparently in the military. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, Zelensky may have bitten off a bit more than he can chew here. But uh, again, this is something we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Let's talk now about the U.S. aid bill to Ukraine. Where is that? Well, why is it stuck in Congress? Uh, where do you think it's going? Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about this uh, a bit uh, over, you know, several weeks. The, the Biden administration uh, last year asked for a 100 and I think 110 billion, maybe uh, in that neighborhood package of military supplemental aid. Most of it around 60 billion uh, going to Ukraine, uh, around 14, 15 billion going to Israel. Uh, some was supposed to go to Taiwan. Uh, there was some that was supposed to go uh, to, uh, well, at least uh, they're now talking up the idea that some uh, some of it would go toward humanitarian aid for Gaza. Um, and there was a piece of it that was supposed to go toward border security. This has caused a months long meltdown in Congress as uh, Republicans try to decide whether they want to take yes for an answer and agree to uh, the, what the Democrats have offered, which would be, uh, from what I can tell, the most draconian uh, border security measure ever adopted, or if they want to uh, leave the, you know, ignore this and, and not pass it and leave the issue uh, kind of uh, festering for Donald Trump to run on as president. They've decided to leave the issue festering for Donald Trump to run on uh, for president. And so as a consequence, the Ukraine aid is once again uh, in serious limbo, um, along with all these other things. The, the Republicans in the House actually uh, put forward a, uh, a smaller bill. It was just aid for Israel. And that lost I don't even think it won the vote in the House. Uh, Biden had threatened to veto it. Um, there's a new package in the Senate now that's essentially everything in the, the military aid bill except the border stuff. Uh, and the thinking being maybe enough moderate Republicans uh, are so going to be so disgusted with this display of, uh, you know, kind of uh, negotiating a border deal and then uh, backing out of the border deal because Donald Trump told them to, uh, that they will come over now and support a bill that that is uh, border free, that just deals with uh, aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel and, and the other things. I, I, I think the chances of that are pretty slim and the chances of it getting through the House are probably nil. Uh, but that's where things stand. And I don't know. I mean, the administration keeps saying that they will find a way uh, to start supplying aid, military aid to Ukraine again. I, I don't know legally uh, what they're they're considering or if there is anything uh, that could continue that. But certainly from the legislative perspective, it's uh, it's not looking good. Let's talk about the Netherlands, uh, where Geert Wilder's attempt to put together a coalition appears to have faltered. Yes. Uh, so back in November, the uh, ultra right wing xenophobe uh, Wilders won his party, won, quote unquote, the election uh, was the became the largest in the, the new session of parliament, but nowhere near uh, majority uh, control of the chamber. Uh, so he has been negotiating with a group of three other parties uh, to try to form a majority government. Uh, it, he took a pretty big, it seems, setback uh, on Tuesday uh, when one of the parties that he'd been trying to negotiate with, uh, the new social contract party, which is sort of a center-right formation, 
quit uh, the negotiations. Uh, the reasons for this don't the, the reasons that the, the parties offered don't uh, entirely aren't entirely coherent. But apparently, uh, the 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 person that Wilders had appointed as sort of his point person to to run these negotiations uh, was concealing, or they're claiming that he was concealing some. Uh, critical information about Dutch finances, about the budget, uh, and what they might be able to do in terms of uh, spending versus having to raise taxes or cut spending to to implement an agenda. And apparently, things are worse in terms of uh, the budget than they they uh, had previously been led to believe. And so, you know, the 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 agenda is going to have to be uh, constricted from what I think you know the NSC. Uh, leadership thought it would be so they've quit uh the talks on forming a coalition they they have suggested that they would be open to providing support uh, to a minority government uh, led by builders uh so that's a possibility um but uh for right now his his hopes of having a, a more stable majority government seem to be on the rocks and, and lurking behind all this is is you know the extremism of of Wilder's position is is unpalatable to most other uh dutch parties i mean they're willing to sort of uh, at least the conservative ones seem to be willing to provide as i say support for uh, a minority government but they're 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 kind of struggling with the idea of coming in to a coalition with him and being associated with him that closely uh so that's another issue it's been you know, two to three months at this point uh, since the election uh, going on three months, I guess, which seems like a lot, seems like a long time to be doing coalition uh, negotiations. It is not uh, in uh, in Dutch politics. It's not that long after the last election took almost a year uh, for parties to coalesce into a government. So uh, we're still at the beginning phases of this process. But as I say, it's uh, it's not looking great for for the uh, the racists at this point. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Colombia, where the government and the ELN have extended the ceasefire. Yes, uh, the Colombian government and National Liberation Army, or ELN, have been negotiating. They've been in an, another round of peace talks. Uh, they were coming up on a deadline uh, on uh, Tuesday, really. Uh, they had extended it briefly, but they were coming up on a deadline to uh, agree to extend their current ceasefire. Uh, and they, they did at sort of the last minute agree to extend it for at least another six months. Um, as part of that deal, the ELN agreed to stop kidnapping people for ransom. Uh, they also, both sides agreed to uh, stop recruiting child soldiers or agents. And, uh, they agreed to establish a fund that would support elements of the peace process, uh, that need to be paid for. So, uh, you know, uh, keeping people informed and kind of, uh, you know, keeping everything on track, I guess it's details on exactly how it would be fun, how it will be funded or, or what it will be paying for, uh, not, not fully clear, but, uh, the ELN had been asking for, uh, financial support to help it, you know, get over, uh, the practice of kidnapping for ransom, which is one of the ways that the group, uh, brings in money. They had asked the government to, uh, to help them find alternative sources of funding. I don't think it's quite as explicit as that. Uh, but there may be some of that in this uh, kind of nebulous fund. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, the, the extension is good news, obviously, um, and uh, they'll have another six months to kick it around. And, and uh, obviously, at some point, uh, they will want to talk about a permanent ceasefire. I don't think they're, uh, they're there yet. All right, Derek, let's move on to Haiti, where there have been protests against the acting prime minister, Ariel Henry. 
Yes. Uh, these broke out on Monday. Uh, they were supposed to culminate uh, on Wednesday, which is uh, February 7th is the traditional date for uh, inaugurating new Haitian presidents. The protesters had viewed that as a good day for Omri to to resign. So that was sort of supposed to be the culmination of their uh, their demonstrations. He obviously did not do that. Uh, but there have been uh, major protests across the country, particularly in Port-au-Prince, but other cities as well. Uh, we've seen, you know, if you've looked at uh, video or seen anything online, again, kind of, uh, you know, lit barricades and police and protesters clashing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was a shootout, apparently, according to Reuters in, in Port-au-Prince uh, on Wednesday in which Haitian police killed five agents of the BSAP agency. BSAP is an environmental agency. It's supposed to be charged with protecting environmentally sensitive areas uh, in Haiti, but it's become kind of a quasi-paramilitary organization with some government sanction. Related to a man named uh, Guy Philippe, who is a uh, politician, militant leader, kind of a, I guess, man of all seasons, uh, a man for all seasons, who uh, was involved in the 2004 coup uh, that ousted then-President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. He is now involved in this movement to uh, demand Henri's resignation. Of course, Henri has no legal mandate. He was appointed uh, days before Jovenel Moïse, the last uh, previous Haitian president, was assassinated and, and never even uh, you know, went through a normal confirmation process as prime minister before assuming all the executive power in Haiti by default. So, uh, you know, clearly not somebody who has a, a great democratic mandate to be ruling anyway. Let's talk about the United States, where there's a new deputy secretary of state. Yes, the Senate on Tuesday confirmed Kurt Campbell as the new deputy secretary of state. He's replacing Wendy Sherman. She re- retired in July. Uh, Campbell had been serving as Indo-Pacific Affairs Coordinator on the National Security Council in the White House. So clearly, uh, if you're rooting for the pivot to Asia, uh, this is another uh, attempt at at landing the pivot to Asia uh, by putting uh, somebody regarded as an Asian Pacific specialist uh, in such a prominent role as Deputy Secretary of State, the number two uh, person in the State Department could be in line, I guess, to to become Secretary of State if uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, the wildly effective uh, diplomat who is currently in the Middle East, making things actively worse uh, the longer he stays there. Uh, if he were to say, you know, if if there were a second Biden term and Blinken were to say, you know, I've uh, four years is enough, uh, this would put Campbell uh, uh, presumably as one of the the top candidates to succeed him. Derek, let's conclude <laughs> with some great news. Last week, we ended with the U.S. being the top arms dealer in the world. This week, let's end with uh, climate. So climate Derek, news tell us is about always this good. new climate study. <laughs> yeah, so there's a couple of things happening here. One is that uh, the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service uh, announced on Thursday that from February 2023 to January 2024, the Earth average 1.52 degrees Celsius higher than the global average temperature uh, in the late 19th century, which is the baseline uh, used by international agencies, in particular the UN's uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and is uh, was basically adopted uh, as the baseline for the Paris Climate Agreement, the vaunted 2015 uh, deal to, to, you know, when we stop global warming and everything uh, has been fine ever since. Uh, we had previously known that uh, the Earth surpassed the 1.5 degree threshold 
which is the the line where in Paris it was set as the line to stay under to minimize the worst effects of climate change. Uh, we've known that humanity topped that line by the end of 2023, but this says uh, uh, we've been above it for a full year now uh, and raises the, the possibility that we've just blown by it for good. Actually, it's a really uncharted territory. So uh, it can seem something quite anecdotal, being 1.5, 1.6, or 1.4, but it is not uh, because we, we don't know, the scientific community doesn't know if uh, we, we would be in a, in a situation where the change of climate is really irreversible. Now, climate scientists don't make these kinds of determinations on the basis of even a full year's worth of temperature data. It takes years, decades even, before you're, you're able to come to this conclusion. But clearly, uh, what looked like maybe a blip and maybe we still had some time to keep things down below the, the 1.5 degree level uh, is not a it's not a blip. It's a trend. So that's not good. Uh, the other thing that's going on here is there was a new study published in the journal Nature Climate Change that suggests that, in fact, not only have we blown past 1.5 degrees uh, warming, we are now at 1.7 degrees warming over uh, the baseline. They use a different baseline. I'll get into that. Uh, and we're approaching the two degree Celsius threshold, which in the Paris Agreement is like the break glass in case of emergency time. Uh, that's when things start to get really, really bad. Uh, so this study, uh, and I'm not a biologist. I don't have all the <laughs> details. I can't explain to you what they did. Uh, but the study relies on sea sponges, which apparently give you really good global temperature data going way back before the late 1800s. And what they found in this study is that if you actually go back to really pre-industrial times, which should be the baseline for Paris, should be the baseline uh, that the uh, IPCC uses, but because we don't have accurate thermometers, accurate temperature data uh, that goes all the way back uh, before the, the you know, kind of second half of the 1800s. They don't. They rely on to calculate, quote unquote, pre-industrial temperature. They rely on a period that was well after the start of the Industrial Revolution. So there's a flaw in the way these things are tracked anyway. So uh, what the sea sponges allow you to do, apparently, and they the data from the sea sponges, uh, temperature data tracks very closely, apparently, with what uh, the IPCC has going back, as I said, to the the second half of the 19th century. So it's reasonable to assume that it, they're also accurate uh, when it comes to global temperature. Before that, uh, what they find, as I say, is that uh, if we really go back to pre-industrial times, the real what, what should be the real baseline, we are uh, well on our way, not just past uh, the, it would be nice if we could stay under this line, line but we are well on our way to the it would be really bad if we go over this line line so uh not good not 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 good that's why we have to make our children prepare to fight in the climate wars uh derek thank you so much for listening make Everyone, them subscribe to you. american prestige <laughs> the biggest the, that's the yeah, only give thing them, make their it. allowance contingent on spending it on american prestige. that's what i hear everyone thanks for listening we'll see you again soon bye bye